0: Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. Enlighten our minds. Let us come to know you as you would have us know you as, as your friends. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly, The Prophetic Gift. And the lesson this week is The Message of the Prophets. And somebody read for us in Sunday's lesson, the first paragraph, starting, Sin is the Greatest. Sin is the greatest problem we face. The Egyptians thought that death was humanity's biggest problem, and hence they developed the art of mummification and built huge pyramids to keep the mummies. The Greek philosophers thought ignorance was the chief enemy of true happiness, so they emphasized education. But the chief problem of humanity is sin. Sin destroys happiness and peace of mind. Sin kills, and no modern medicine can cure it. From the moment we are born, we begin to die. The only cure is Jesus Christ and the cross. Quote, there is not a point that needs to be dwelt on more earnestly, repeated more frequently,
1: or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. From Faith and Works, page 19.
0: Thoughts about that paragraph. Did you like it? Mm-hmm. I liked right in the middle the sentence that said, sin kills and no modern medicine can cure it. That is right on the money. You notice, uh, the Bible does not teach that God kills the wicked because of sin. Sin kills. Sin is terminal. Uh, Sin, it says in uh, Psalms 34.12, it says evil will slay the wicked. Of course, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. James 1.15, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Galatians 6.8, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Sin kills. you know that that statement, it sounds so obvious to us, do you know how many Christians on some level teach that God kills? That That sin actually doesn't kill, sin results in a penalty that must be inflicted by God, and He must kill. That's not what the Bible teaches. So I really like the fact that the that the lesson had this in here: sin kills. No modern medicine can cure it. When you think about sin, why is sin a terminal condition? Why does sin kill? It
1: destroys the
0: mind. It destroys the mind. Separates us from the only source of life in the universe. Okay, Uh, it separates us from the source of life. How does it separate us? What 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 are the roots of sin? Lies. Lies. And what do lies do in a relationship?
1: Destroy trust.
0: Yeah, if, you, if you believe lies about your spouse, do you, are you able to get closer to your spouse or, or does it tear you apart? Does it break down that relationship? you believe your spouse is cheating, your spouse is a power monger, your spouse is out to hurt you, can you open your heart and trust to that person if you believe those things are going on? No, when we believe lies about God, it severs that connection, as Russell said, and, and severs us from the source of life itself. And, and this is the ultimate outcome of sin. Lies, believe, break the circle of love and trust. So why is it impossible? Oh, by the way, it says sin is lawlessness, meaning sin is, is living outside the law of life operations, the law that life operates upon. That's what sin is, moving outside of that law. It'd be like saying sin is... Breathlessness, or sin is pulselessness, sin is lawlessness. It's outside the very rule of life. And this is why it results in death. Why is it impossible for anyone to merit anything by their own works as far as salvation goes? Why is that the case? Any thoughts? Well, imagine you were born with cystic fibrosis, a genetic condition. It's a lung disease which is terminal. If you were born with that condition, is there any hard work you could do that is going to fix that situation? Does it matter how many rules you keep, how much tithe you pay, how many Sabbaths you observe, what foods you eat? If you were born with cystic fibrosis, is all the hard work in the world going to fix that situation? No. We are born in a terminal condition. Our situation is terminal. Terminal. And no amount of good work is going to resolve that situation for us. We need a remedy. We need something that will actually transform, cure, recreate, transform us. Somebody read the last paragraph in Sunday's lesson for us.
1: The balanced Christian will have assurance of salvation in Jesus and lead a victorious Christian life at the same time. The two go together like the two sides of a coin. Whomever God justifies, he also sanctifies. We cannot have one without the other. We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is not alone. Good works follow, even though those good works, even done under the unction of the Holy Spirit, never can justify us before God. Our salvation is rooted only in what Jesus has done for us.
0: Somebody want to explain that paragraph to me? What do you all think about that paragraph? If you read that to your nine year old child, will it make sense? Can you explain that so a nine-year-old can understand it? What does it mean to be justified? Well, maybe we should ask the first question. Who is doing the justifying? Who justifies us? Christ. I heard Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. The lesson actually was correct. Whomever God justifies. In Romans 8.31... What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And Second Corinthians 5.19 God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. So, we'll, we're going to define what justification is, but God is justifying through Christ. Christ is the medium, the avenue, the conduit, the person of the Godhead through whom God is achieving our justification. Why is it important to recognize God as the one justifying rather than Jesus is the one justifying? I mean, obviously they're doing it together, but God through Jesus doing it rather than just Jesus doing it. Why is that important to recognize?
1: Because people separate the desires of the Godhead.
0: Ah, you hear that? See, when you you think of the traditional way of justification, maybe we should talk about that. What is justification? How is it traditionally taught? How are we justified in traditional Christian theology? The death of Christ. The death of Christ... Pays the penalty of sin. The death of Christ paid the penalty of sin. So if we accept the payment, then we are set right or justified with God because our penalty has been paid. Like a legal it's, blood payment. Yeah, a blood payment. Okay? This is how it's often taught. Has anybody ever heard that? Yeah. Now, see, Jesus is the one paying the payment, and the Father is the one receiving the payment. Well, that's different. This is why it's so important to recognize God is the one who's justifying through Christ, not God the one receiving a payment. So that we can be justified with God. That's not how it works. So we need to talk about what is justification. What is justifying? What does it mean to be justified? Put right. Put right. You see, uh, I, I, I think you're referring to a computer. Yeah. Anybody have a word processor on their computer? You can take and justify the margins on your document. And when you justify the margins, what happens to the margins? All yeah, they all go in straight line. They all line up. Everything that's out of order is put in order. Everything that's out of line is put in line. Everything out of balance is put in balance. So justify means to make right or set right or put right or, or heal from a terminal condition. That would be justifying. God is justifying or setting right the human race through Jesus Christ. Now, the question is, what is wrong that needs to be set Right?
1: Our hearts
0: and minds. Our hearts and minds. What would you say?
1: Our hearts. We believe the lies.
0: Okay, so at least two things need to be just of it. Our hearts and minds. What is the human mindset, attitude, belief system, naturally sense in about God? What's our, our our default automatic position without the holy spirit changing us without regeneration without rebirth what is our our pre- predisposition towards god in our nature and character
1: We're of We're of fear. fear
0: fear distrust do you think that needs to be set right yes. yes that needs to be fixed that needs to be changed that needs to be made right So justification is about changing the the sinful nature's attitude towards God, bringing us back into right relationship with Him, putting us right with God. The pagan view, and the root of all paganism, is an angry, wrathful God who has to be appeased. And We, as worshipers, offer sacrifices, blood payments, uh, works of labor, bring the fruits of of our offerings to to appease the angry wrath of God so that we can win Him over and His favor over to our side. Now, none of us believe that we can do that because there is nothing we can offer God that would win Him over, is there? There's nothing that we have that's good. Everything we have is, is filthy rags. So I know what we'll do. When he sends his son, we know how to win God over. We'll kill his son and offer him his son's blood and then he'll be happy with us. Isn't that what most of Christianity teaches? We kill a son and then we offer the father the son's blood for our payment, for our sin. And now the father is going loving and gracious and happy with us. Do you find a problem with this thinking? Christ did not die to win the father's favor. Christ died to win you and me. To win us back to trust in the Father, number one. But then he died to fix, heal, transform, regenerate humanity. To put the law of love back in the heart and mind of the human being where it belonged. To reconcile us to God. To put us in harmony. To put what was out of harmony back in harmony. To justify, to make us right. Thoughts or questions about that? So why do good works, why do good works follow? It says in the lesson that good works will follow. Why is that the case?
1: Love.
0: Love? Okay. We, so Paul says in the New Testament that, that the love of God or love of Christ compels us. When you love somebody genuinely love somebody if you you as a parent, love your child and you see your child is is somehow pulled out some lighter fluid and matches and is about to strike some, do you sit back and go oh well he 'll learn his lesson, <laughs> or does love compel you to action? Love compels to action you can 't sit still if you love the child, can you no, when you see your child in danger so love so love is a motivating factor to changing what we do. What else? Yes.
1: Well, we see that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam chose to sin, he
0: immediately rejected Jesus' coming or, or the Father's uh, visit there with him. He uh, went in here. And that's exactly what we do. But God wants to change that in us so that we will naturally run to him. Yeah, why did they run and hide? Why did they run and hide? Right see, lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear, and selfishness. See, when you believe God is bad, instead of knowing that He is good, then you run from Him, not because He needs to be run from, but because of the lies we believe in our own hearts and minds about who He is. Hand in the back, yes. Um, We're also
1: told that God is the one who works in us both to will and to do. so He not only wins us to trust, but He puts in us what He wants us to do. Out.
0: Absolutely. So when we're one to trust, we open the heart, say, I trust you, God. Then it says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. Now, God is love, isn't he? So in order to pour his love into our hearts, what's being poured into our hearts? Yes, right, yes. Himself. Know ye not that ye are a temple, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit dwells in you? We actually become an abiding place, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. God is love. And then there's a supernatural process that takes place where our thoughts are brought into harmony with His. Our desires, our motives, our inclinations are transformed. But in that process, do you ever lose autonomy? Do you ever lose freedom to make your own choices? Do you ever become a puppet or a robot where God is now pulling the strings of your mind and making the choices for you? No. Why will that never happen? Doesn't want it to happen? He doesn't want it to happen, because if he did that, what is destroyed immediately? Love. love. Can robots love? Can puppets love? No, love requires freedom. And so while there is the indwelling, transforming, healing, regenerating process, it's only in an atmosphere of genuine freedom, because as soon as anything would take your freedom from you, you can no longer love. So why do good works follow? Well, here's an analogy. If you had pneumonia, fever, cough, chills, all these things, and you get treatment, and as the pneumonia gets better, what happens to the fever, cough, and chills? Do you have to work to make the fever, cough, and chills go away if the pneumonia is getting better? You have to make the choice to participate with the doctor, take his medicine, uh, but the medicine does something inside you you can't do for yourself, yes? And then is there a natural change that comes about where you, without having to work at it, suddenly you, you don't have fevers, you're not coughing like you used to, okay? As the Holy Spirit works in us, that our behavior, our lives change, so there's a change in our, quote, works, because we're not a sick in heart anymore. The acts of sin, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Those acts of sin are symptoms of the sick heart. He says the, the good man brings good from the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings out evil from the evil stored up in him. As the as the heart is transformed, it is natural that we begin living different lives. Yes? Maybe another analogy, too, is when you fall in love, you just want to make happy. It doesn't takes a lot of effort. You just want to make that other person happy and you do things for them, even if it's expensive to yourself. Just do this. It's just part of it. it. When you're in love, is it hard work to be kind to the person you love? Not work at all, it's pleasure. Yes, you hear that? It's not work at all, it's pleasure. When you're in love, loving the person you're in love with is, is, is joy, isn't it? It's not hard work. In fact, would it be hard to not? love them? To not show your love in actions? and, and, and is it, w- Would it be work to restrain that and hold it back? I mean, when you're really in love and, and maybe you're having this romance and you're in love and, and uh, you really don't want people to know, you're trying to keep it on the on the low down, okay? Um, is it hard to keep that hidden? Yeah. People see it in your face, don't they? Like if that person walks in the room, your whole countenance changes and you go like, Whoa. They're reading me. What can I do? You can't. It's hard to keep it suppressed when you're in love, isn't it? Yes. Just like, and when God heals our hearts, see, we were we were created for love, to love everyone. Just like we're created to breathe. Now, how hard is it to breathe? When was the last time you got up and said, "Man, I've got to breathe today"? <laughs> It's natural. It's easy. Unless you're really, really sick. If you've got really bad lung disease, then breathing becomes really hard, and sometimes we need artificial assistance to help us breathe. Well, that's how our hearts and minds now. We don't love like God designed us to love. It's really, really hard. We need artificial assistance. But when God heals us, not loving would be right now like not breathing, it's hard not to breathe. You have to work not to breathe. You have to. It, it becomes uncomfortable when you hold your breath, isn't it? Yes. And when we're healed, it's hard not to love. We have to actually work at not loving when we're healthy, and it doesn't feel good. It's uncomfortable. That's the healing God wants to bring us. In the last paragraph, it also said something about we are saved by faith alone. Are we saved by faith? No, 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 we are not. Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not by yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And what does that mean? Well, if you have a terminal condition, and somebody develops a cure. It's a real cure that will cure you. But the person who develops it is your mortal enemy. You hate them, and you don't trust them. Will you take the remedy from that person? No. You have to trust the person to take the remedy. But trust you have a father that you love. Trust him greatly. But he has no remedy for your terminal condition. Will your trust in your father get you well if he has no remedy? We're not saved by trust. But we won't be saved without trust because without trust we won't take the remedy Christ has procured for us. So our trust is the door or the avenue through which God applies the remedy to our life. But the remedy was achieved only in Christ Jesus. So why is our salvation rooted only in Christ Jesus? Why? What's necessary to reestablish trust in God? What was necessary for the human race to reestablish saving trust in God?
1: The revelation of his character,
0: accurate revelation of his character, evidence. The evidence about who God is, which destroys the lies that Satan has told and wins us to trust. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Christ says. I've finished the work you've given me to do, John 17. I have made you known unto men. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth about what? In Isaiah 60, it says, darkness covers the people, gross darkness the people. Darkness about what? Jesus, it says in John chapter 1, is the light that lightens all men. Lightens them about what? Is it not centrally always the issue about the Father? This is life eternal, John 17, that they might know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ who now sent. When we don't wage war like the world does, the weapons we have destroy everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, Paul tells us they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images with their own hands to the truth about God. Their minds became darkened, depraved, and foolish. We can't be healed without the truth about God. So, step one, Christ came to reveal truths about God to win us to trust. But he had to do more than that. What else did Christ have to do? See, if we just trust God and that's it, we're still terminal. We're still dying. Christ had to actually cure the condition. Does anybody know how he did that? Yes?
1: He actually had to develop the
0: cure. He had to develop the cure. How did Christ develop the cure? By living a sinless sinless life. By living a sinless life as a divine being that sent from heaven? No, as a human As a human being. Did Christ live a perfect life as a human being? Did he grow in wisdom and stature? Now, does the divine part of Jesus Christ grow in wisdom and stature? No. No, that's the human part that grows in wisdom and stature. In in Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. James chapter 1 says God can't be tempted. So when it talks about Christ being tempted, is it the human part or the God part? Mm -hmm. Human part. And it says tempted in every way, just like we are without sin. And in James 1, it says we are tempted by our own evil desires or feelings. Did Christ, are both of those scriptures too? Was Christ tempted like us? Are we tempted by our desires? Did Christ have human desires that tempt him? In Gethsemane, did he experience powerful emotions that tempted him? And if he followed those emotions, what would he have done?
1: Save Save yeah. Yeah.
0: You see, the root of sin in our characters is the opposite of the law of love. The law of love, greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We had to give our lives for each other. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The law of love is a law of giving. Sin at its root is a law of taking. Selfishness, me first. Watch out for number one. We are tempted constantly to do that. It's our inherited nature since Adam fell. Christ experienced those temptations in Gethsemane so powerfully that he was crushing him. He, with the agony was so great to act and not go through the cross. But every time the temptation came, Christ chose to give himself. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. And why did Christ then have to die? Well, think this through. At any point along death's approach. As death is approaching Christ, his life is slowly ebbing away. At any point, was Christ still free? Did he have access to power that he could have stopped it? Yes. Sure he could have. If he did stop death's approach, who did he save?
1: Selfishness.
0: Selfishness wins. The only way to kill selfishness is by never using his power to stop its approach and giving himself freely. And thus, in Jesus Christ, the law of love was perfectly lived out. And Psalms 19 tells us the law of the Lord is perfect. What's it do? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Once Christ completed his mission, perfectly restoring the law of love, in his experience, the grave could not keep him. It was the inevitable outcome that he would rise because the law of love is the law of life. He would rise again. Because there is nothing to hold him in the grave. And thus he becomes, Hebrews 5, 8, it says, Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Because of his perfection, we now, through trust, experience via the work of the Holy Spirit, who takes all that Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us as we trust him. He indwells us, transforms us, as was saying earlier, and it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We come to actually love others more than self. And we will have that battle to fight. We will be tempted with fear and selfishness to protect self. And we'll be challenged to trust God and give self in love anyway. This is the battle that we will walk. And the people that are ready to meet Jesus when he comes in Revelation chapter 12 are described in these words. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Something has changed in them. They're not watching out for themselves. They're going forward in faith in God even when their lives are on the line. That's transformation of the Holy Spirit.
1: Why was it necessary for Christ to die?
0: Because at any point along death's approach, if he would have stopped death's approach, who does he save? Which law wins? The law of giving self or the law of protecting self? If he chooses to stop it, notice he didn't kill himself. He didn't do like Saul in the Old Testament, take a sword out and fall on it. He wasn't committing suicide. He was being killed on the cross. He was being abused. All the satanic agencies, evil men, were abusing, spitting on him, crucifying. Did he have the power to stop death's approach? If he would have stopped death's approach, is he acting in love to give himself or is he acting to protect himself? If he stops it, if he uses the power to stop it, who's he protecting? Himself. Is that God's law or is that Satan's law of selfishness? The only way to exterminate this temptation, because on the cross, remember, he's still being tempted to do it. Others he saved. Himself he can't save. Come down off the cross, save yourself, and we'll worship you. Save yourself. Save yourself. Did he not get this temptation the whole way through? Sure, he did. Imagine you being on that cross. With the power to stop it. With the power to wipe out these people who are abusing you. You think you could have restrained the use of that power? I know I couldn't have. You guys would have been toast. <laughs> <laughs> Christ, Christ knew he had the power. Yeah. He said, no one can take my life. No one can take it. I will give it freely. So he perfectly restored, in his human experience, God's character of love.
1: And that's the cure that he was developing to give us. Yes. Unless he went all the way through and the cure was perfect, we couldn't be restored. If he had, if he had done anything, if he had taken any action before that, the cure would have been perfect and he would have had nothing to give us and his trust was restored because we already would have had a cure that to the reaction like of selfishness. What he was developing was the unselfish character back in humanity so that when trust was restored, the cure was ready
0: to be given. Beautifully said. Ellen White, one of the founders of our church, uh, she wrote in Desire of Ages, page 761. She said, The law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give. But Christ came as man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. Desire Ages, 761.
1: I'm just thinking of the substitutionary nature of what happened on the cross is dying in our place because of sin.
0: Yes. No. See, Christ was our substitute, but for what? See, the traditional view says, he who took the substitute to take the legal penalty to be executed in our place so the penalty would be paid. That's one view of substitution. But another view is, we are all dying in a terminal condition, and we can't cure ourselves. So he came, as it says in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, upon him our infirmities, our iniquities, our terminal condition was laid. He substituted himself, taking our sickness upon himself to overcome it and cure it and fix it. So yes, he was absolutely our substitute. But for what purpose? For paying legal penalties or for actually transforming, healing, and curing humanity and putting mankind back into God's original design? You understand in Jesus Christ, humanity became everything God created Adam to become. That's what happened in Jesus Christ. And without Jesus Christ, humanity would never have become that. So he substituted for us, no question about it. Boy, we got some some really good things to go through. Monday's lesson, somebody read the second paragraph.
1: In the Old Testament, the sinner received forgiveness through faith in the atoning blood of the promised seed, who was foreshadowed in the animal sacrifice of the sanctuary service. And just as in the earthly service, at the close of the year, there was a day of atonement, a day of judgment, on which the sanctuary was cleansed. So in the heavenly sanctuary service, there's a day of judgment prior to Christ's second coming.
0: Okay, I hope everybody heard that. And then in the green section it says, In Leviticus 16, the key elements that appear again and again is blood. And that and that makes sense because this is the day of atonement, and only blood atones. And what is atonement other than the work of God saving us? Hence the judgment is good news. It's the work of God saving us because we can't save ourselves. The crucial point is that just as the high priest never went into the most holy place without blood, neither should we, For for to enter the most holy place without blood means death, not atonement.
1: Amen.
0: <laughs> First, what is the great mistake most people make when studying the Old Testament, in my opinion? and I'll just say, in my opinion, the great mistake that most people make in studying the Old Testament is that they use the Old Testament symbols to understand Jesus and His ministry rather than using Jesus as the lens to understand the Old Testament. Rather than letting the living Word help us understand the written word. We pigeonhole the living word into what we understand the old symbols of the written word to be. This has got it backwards, in my opinion. I'm not alone in that, by the way. One of the founders of our church said basically the same thing in Christ Object Lessons, page 133. The significance of the Jewish economy is not fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shadowed forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks the mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are open to the understanding. Far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. Now, this is from one of the founders of our church who helped form our church doctrine. After our church doctrine was officially established, notice one of the founders wrote, far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these themes. Does that not explicitly state, we don't get it all yet. We don't got it all. We got more to learn. Even though we've already got a doctrinal position on this, it's not the final word. And one of the problems is that we haven't used the gospel as the key to unlock the Old Testament themes. We've taken the Old Testament little, little building and we've forced a heavenly interpretation on what we think that means. But Christ said when you do this, when you force the new into the old, he says in Matthew 9, 17, Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins, and both are preserved. See, when Christ came, He became the new understanding. He's the new wine. He's the the, the gospel in living flesh. He's the, the 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 touchstone that we have to to look at to understand this stuff, rather than trying to force Jesus to fit into our understanding of the Old Testament. Does everybody kind of see where, where I'm going with that? Okay. Um, So I think we have a lot of work to do. Now I'm going to read to you another from one of the founders of our church after our understanding, because we're dealing now with this doctrine of the the investigative judgment, the sanctuary in heaven, the the toning blood, and all that kind of stuff. Listen to this and see if you get a different perspective on what it means to cleanse the sanctuary. 2,300 days and the sanctuary be cleansed. This is out of Desire of Ages 161. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, that old building in Jerusalem, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and for the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being, from the bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the Creator." Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the heart of man no longer revealed the glory of the Divine One. But, by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity. And through saving grace, the heart of man becomes again His temple. Where does God want to dwell? What's the temple symbol of? God designed that the temple of Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not understood the significance. The Adventists had not under- oh, excuse me the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they re- regarded with such pride. They did not yield themselves as holy temples to the divine spirit. The courts at the Temple of Jerusalem, filled with a tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion, unholy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission. To cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin. From the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, the evil habits that corrupt the soul. And then there's a quotation from Malachi. By the way, this Malachi passage is speaking of the exact same time frame as Daniel 8.14. 2,300 days in the sanctuary should be cleansed. Same thing in this Malachi passage 3.1-3. Notice, the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple... Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who can abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, a fuller's soap or a launderer's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now get this. And he purifies the sons of Levi and purges them as gold. What's getting purified here? A building, a record book. Some inanimate objects in a heavenly building somewhere. What's getting purified? What's getting cleansed? The sons of Levi, we would call them the priesthood of believers. This is who is being cleansed. Unto 2,300 years and the sanctuary will be cleansed. Meaning, 2,300 years before God cleanses his people and prepares them for translation. What do you think about that? I see some mm, furrowed brows. Mm. That's what he says in Ezekiel that he's going to do. It absolutely says in Ezekiel chapter 46, I believe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That he's going to take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. And I will reveal my glory to the nations through you. That's what he says. Through you, I will be glorified. As he removes the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh. Absolutely.
1: Cleansing, cleansing us all along, what is the significance of
0: the 2300
1: days and him suddenly coming to his temple?
0: Ah. People Thank you for asking that question. That's a great question. Did Paul say in Thessalonians, don't be deceived by anybody who says that the second coming has already come? We know there's not going to come until the man of sin arises, that man of perdition, right? Who will do all types of awful things and sets himself up where, does, the, does Paul say? <laughs> in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So this man of sin, this, this man of perdition, this evil person, is going to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, after Christ's death, after Christ's resurrection, after Christ's ascension into heaven, did some evil force, Satan or some other agent of Satan, go up into heaven and kick God off his throne in the temple of heaven and sit down in the heavenly temple and to proclaim himself to be God? Is that what happened? No. 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 So then what is Thessalonians talking about? What Paul's talking about is that he sets himself up in God's temple. Proclaims himself to be God. Where did that happen? This temple. So when God looks down the passages and corridors of time in Daniel 28, he's seeing that Christ is going to come and win the victory, reveal the truth the witness to trust, and develop that perfect remedy for, for sin. But he's going to see a counterattack from the devil, to confuse our minds about what happened, to come with a counterfeit gospel, a false gospel, and it's and, and going to be embraced and taught by people, and it's going to be taken in, and he's going to set himself up in the hearts and minds in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And God saw down through the corridor's of time that it would be 2,300 years before enough truth was recovered so that judgment would be given to the saints, as it says in Daniel chapter 7. Judgment given to the saints, we often teach until God sits up and proclaims a judgment on our behalf. No, until we are given discernment, until we are given judgment, until we are given the ability to discern the right from the wrong, as it says in Hebrews chapter five, fourteen. Then we judge. Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment, His judgment has come. The hour for you to decide, is God like Satan says He is? Or is God like Jesus revealed him to be. This is the question. And the Revelation text says, Wake up, people. Wake up. Hey, an angel with a loud voice coming, saying, Recognize the Creator, the Redeemer. See Him before He is, because it's time for Him to be judged. you think that's out of line, that we would say that God is being judged? Romans chapter 3, verse 4. King James Version. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and might overcome when thou art judged. Or in the good news, certainly not. God must be true, even though every human is a liar. As the scripture says, you must be shown to be right when you speak and must win your case when you are being tried. This is all about God. God's on trial. He's being judged. And we are the jury. And you're judging. Can you trust him? Or can you not trust him? Why? Because he's been lied about. And we believe the lies. And we believed he's an awful being. And what is the wine that intoxicates all the nations from this beast and this man of sin? What is the wine that? and how did he get set up in our minds? It's in our lesson this week. And as soon as I tell you what the lie is, I'm going to take you to the lesson and show you the lie is in our quarterly. Because all the nations drink of this wine and are intoxicated on this wine. And the lie is a lie that God is an arbitrary God who demands appeasement and must be paid. And it's paganism. At the root of paganism is a God who must be appeased in order to be gracious and forgiving and loving. And you understand the history of the Reformation. All Protestant churches came out or protested the abuses of the Catholicism. And Catholicism arose from where? Paganism. Paganism. It was not the descending down from Peter. The apostolic church was the church in hiding. The Waldenses and the Huguenots. This was the apostolic church. It was when Constantine converted and, and declared that Roman nation, now Christian, imagine, you were raised pagan. From birth, your parents are pagan, your grandparents are pagan, and you worship at a fertility cult, and you go there every week and and do your worship as they did at fertility cults, and that means you would get drunk and visit a cult prostitute while you were there, and attendance was always very well attended to. This is seriously, this is what was going on in, in pagan Rome, and you believe in this God, and this is the way you worship, and then you get the little crier coming out from Rome saying, Constantine has edicted that all religions are outlawed except Christianity, we are now a Christian nation. Think this through. Have you been converted? I don't know. So what do you do? If, if you know the Roman guard is going to come put you to death if you uh, don't worship Christ, what do you do is you go to your pagan house of worship and you rename everything. And Now we don't worship the uh, asterisk the fertility god, we worship Mary. And now we don't, we don't worship our pagan deity... We worship God the Father, and we have Jesus, Mary, and all the saints pleading to the Father, offering up His blood instead of the blood of bulls and goats and the things we sacrifice in our fertility cult. And why do we still have Easter eggs and Easter bunnies? Because we worship fertility. We don't worship Christ. Paganism, the root. And now why Protestantism came along and cast out a whole bunch of Catholic abuses, the core has been maintained in Protestantism, and the core is an angry, arbitrary, and wrathful God who set up a law that has to be maintained, and if you break the law, then justice requires he kill and execute you, and Jesus came to pay the penalty and is up there pleading his blood, my my father, my blood, my blood, so God won't be mad at you. That's still paganism at its core. It's not what the Bible teaches. If God is for us, who can be against us? God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. They are one. That's not what the Bible teaches. I'm going to show you in Tuesday's lesson. In this third paragraph, it says, In a certain sense, the Sabbath is arbitrary. Why the seventh day over any other? It is because God said so. That's why. This is the lie. It's infected our church. It's still there. I'm going to read to you from one of the founders of our church out of a book called Fifth Testimonies to the Church, page 738. It says, From the beginning it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that he might secure them to himself. Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself. Get this. As arbitrary. As arbitrary. Severe and unforgiving that he might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. Satan hoped to so confuse the minds of those whom he had deceived that they would put God out of their knowledge. Then he would obliterate the divine image of man and impress his own likeness upon the soul. He would imbue men with his own spirit and make them captives according to his will. And our lesson says that the Sabbath is arbitrary. I'm going to just tell you straight up. The lesson's got some good things in it this week. I've already praised it for some of the comments it's got. This is wrong. God is never arbitrary. They say in the lesson that there's no... It says, uh, but to obey the seventh command, which is isn't rooted in any natural phenomenon, is to reveal a willingness to obey simply because God tells us to. I remember I was at a church in the region once, Sabbath morning. And the opening prayer from the pastor went like this Lord, we're here today, not for the music, not for the sermon, not to visit with friends and each other. We're here for one reason and one reason only. You have commanded that we be here. Oh, no. Hmm. Is that the kind of God we serve? No.
1: Okay. no.
0: Try that on your spouse. <laughs> I command you, and you fill in the blank. Whatever it is, try it. See what happens to love in your relationship. God is love. Love can never be coerced. It can never be forced. It can never be commanded. It can only be freely given. So, l- l- let me finish this point about the Sabbath. Because it-, it says in here, in the lesson, that there's no natural phenomenon. But I would challenge that. The uh, Sabbath is given. given with a reason, and it is rooted in a natural phenomenon. What is the reason, and what's the natural phenomenon? What was going on in the universe? Well, first off, when did the Sabbath come into existence? Creation. Creation Creation of what? This planet and mankind. Was that the creation of the whole universe, or just this planet and this solar system and mankind? Job chapter 38 says that all the sons of God and angels sang together for joy when man was created. They were already in existence before we were created. So it wasn't the creation of everything. It was the creation of this planet. What was going on in the universe during creation week here? War. Uh, War over what? Was it a a physical war over might and power? Uh, Allegiance. It was a war over whether you can trust God or not. Is God trustworthy? Now, you're that angel in heaven. Lucifer has been spreading these lies. Your mind is confused. Things are bouncing back and forth. Your friends are arguing one thing. Other friends are arguing another thing. It's just like, oh, Lucifer, God, Jesus, who are we going to believe? And God says, let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. Let the earth-bearing And And all the attention is drawn from the argument down to this little blue marble in the corner of the Milky Way. Wow, did you see what God did today? What do you think he's going to do tomorrow? And on day six, he says, let us make man in our image. Let them be fruitful and multiply. And as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into unity of love to create, now we have this cool new creation. Two separate beings, yet one in harmony and love, coming in together. And if they would have done what God told them to do, be fruitful and multiply, they'd have joined themselves and brought new life in their image, in a world of love. And what would the angelic host have learned? Oh, these, these guys down here, Adam and Eve, in perfect love, they're bringing kids in the world to enslave, to abuse, to lord over, to command worship from. Or would they have been giving of themselves constantly for the health, happiness, and joy of their kids? And the universe would go, I get it. God didn't create us to wait on him and command us around, but he's giving of himself constantly for our good. Now, that we were created as a human species to be the repository of God's very nature and character of love and to live that out and reveal the truth about God. What an incredible calling God made us for. But you're that angel in heaven. And as you're watching this, think about how much energy it takes to create. We can take a few grams of matter on planet Earth, and we can take that matter and cram it back together until it turns back into energy, and we call that a nuclear explosion. A few grams, big explosion, lots of energy and a little bit of matter. How much energy did it take to make the whole planet? To make the planet of the planets of the solar system, to make the sun? Do you think when God was creating this was a big display of might and power? Yes, sir. Yes. You bet it was. And Satan is right there to whisper in the ears of the angelic host. Hey, I didn't say he wasn't strong. I told you he was strong. He's just flexing his muscles. He's trying to intimidate you. He's telling you, you better watch out because i got the power to wipe you out and replace you in an instant. He just made some new intelligent beings. He can get rid of you any second. You can't trust this guy. Now, those lies are going through your mind. God says, universe... You've heard the allegations against us. You've seen the evidence we've just given. Now, universe, take 24 hours aside and consider for yourself, I rest my case. No pressure, no coercion, Think it through for yourself. Come to your own conclusion. Now, what does it say about God? That in the context, think of the context of a war in which he's being alleged as being untrustworthy. A context in which his right to rule is being challenged. Instead of using power to force people in line, which he could have done, instead he creates a day for freedom to think. What does that say about the kind of God God is? It's incredible, and so the reason the Sabbath exists—the Sabbath itself—is proof, proof that with God you're free. He'll never use His power to coerce you. It proves it each week. It wouldn't exist if He was like Satan says He is. Number one, it's proof that with God we're free. Yes, now Russell, I'll tell number two in a second. Yes, yeah, um, I'm on board
1: with all of this. Uh, my question is: How do we reconcile what Christ said? Uh, is that
0: the Sabbath was made for man. Yeah, yeah, let, 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 let me come to that, let me come to that. Okay, and so number two, number two, the Sabbath is holy. Why is the Sabbath holy? Because it's invested with the attributes of God. What happened? Truth was presented in love, and the universe was left free to think for themselves. So true Sabbath observance is... Presenting the truth and love. Leaving people free. And, and people who have this law of love written on their heart and practice this will stand in sharp distinction in the end of time to those people who are loyal to the beast system, who coerces conformity no one can buy or sell, say those who have the mark of the beast. And so Sabbath observance is much more than simply making sure your, your shops are closed by sundown on Friday and making sure you don't do any work on Sabbath. Remember the, the people in Christ day? They wanted him off the cross by sunset. Why? To keep the Sabbath of the God they just killed. The Jews in Christ day did not dispute which day of the week was the Sabbath. They didn't dispute whether they should do work or not work on Sabbath. They closed their shops on Sabbath. Yet they still hated God and they killed him. They were not Sabbath observers. They used coercive measures. They tortured people. They used the power of the state to get their way. That is not a Sabbath observer. A Sabbath observer is someone who loves others more than themselves, will present truth and love, and leave people free. That's what a Sabbath observer is. And so why was a Sabbath made for man? Because man was created in the context of a war. He was brought into existence in the middle of a battle zone. Man needed that day. And the first thing that they did after their creation was they entered rest with God. That's the first thing they did. Because only in that resting relationship, trusting, abiding relationship with God, can we resist the onslaught of the devil. And so it was also for our protection as well. Thoughts or questions about any of that?
1: I doubt that the writer of the quarterly would disagree with what you're saying now.
0: Yes, but do you notice how he put in there the arbitrariness of it?
1: Well, what is the definition of arbitrary? Like yes,
0: The definition of arbitrary means that someone in power does things on a whim because they have the right to do it without reason?
1: Well, I didn't read the quarterly, but could it be that, you know, a month or, you know, everything as far as time goes, the days, the spring of the earth, the years going around the seven months, and that everything has a scientific reason at the time. But the week that everybody has, seven days, was chosen by God, not saying that it wasn't a special day or that he just chose it because but it's it's there I don't know because God chose it and it doesn't make sense with any
0: God didn't choose it as this idea God chose it and decided to make it holy it was inherently made holy for the purpose of its creation it was created for the purpose of rest for God and freedom of thinking for beings of the universe so its very existence reveals God's nature and character it itself becomes evidence. The Sabbath is evidence of who God is. Right. And so, so this is what makes it holy. It's not an arbitrary thing. It actually has purpose. It has meaning in itself. So it's not an arbitrary test anymore. When it was created, what it stands for, what it's filled with, there is a natural phenomenon upon which it's based. The months and the years are based on, on astrological phenomenon. The Sabbath is not based on an astrological phenomenon. The Sabbath is based on the law of liberty which is a law that emanates from character of God it is a law that says love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom and if you violate this law just like gravity predictable consequences occur if you put a gun to your girlfriend's head and said love me or I'm going to kill you you're violating liberty and one love will be damaged always always damaged try it and see test me on this Two, a desire to rebel will be still in the heart. If she's your girlfriend, you put the gun to her head and start threatening her, I can promise you she won't be your girlfriend for long. Rebellion will start. But if she, for some reason, because she's so fearful to leave, stays and surrenders, over time, her individuality will be destroyed. She will lose the capacity to think and reason for herself, and she will become an empty, shadow person. This is a law. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. You do not have to believe me on this. You can test it. Conversely, if you're in a relationship where freedom's been violated, where someone is controlling, dominating, uh, in- intimidating another, and love has been squished, rebellion and resentment has been building in the heart, if you begin breathing freedom in, promoting the autonomy, the well-being, the dreams, the aspirations of your partner, watch what happens to love. It will blossom and come back. To law. The Sabbath was created on the phenomenon of the law of liberty. Yes.
1: But I'm I'm still having trouble with this too because, I mean, the seven day cycle, like you mentioned, is, you can say, arbitrary. It could have been five days, six days, eight days, but it's seven days. We're not talking
0: of a seven day cycle. We're talking about the Sabbath. See, the people who say in the lesson the Sabbath is arbitrary, they're not saying a seven day cycle is arbitrary. See, they wouldn't say it would be okay to do a seven day cycle and worship on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday and still keep the seven day cycle. That wouldn't be good enough. It has to be the specific day.
1: Well, then how about this? I mean, since everything is this theme of, you know, um, love others more than yourself, you know, as the lesson points out, I mean, you get nothing from keeping the Sabbath. In other words, there's no selfish motivation. Everybody agrees that it's bad to kill, it's it's bad to commit adultery, and all those other things that other communities talk about. But in and of itself, when you keep the Sabbath, you're basically doing something with nothing to gain yourself unless you say uh, you get tired and everybody needs <clears> to rest <throat> and blah blah blah. But I'm saying there's no selfish benefit from keeping the Sabbath. In fact it's a, you know it's, it's difficult. And so why is that not a, a display of selfless love? I would argue that the majority of the people keep Sabbath for selfish reasons. I mean I don't know about college kids. oh the Sabbath's coming we can get rest for ourselves, you know let's, let's go chill out and I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, honestly, I see the majority of people keeping the Sabbath for self celebration. Well, I think that depends on your own you know, environment and how you are raised. I mean, I, I was raised at this but went to public school. Sabbath
0: was not um,
1: a blessing as far as it didn't make life easier. It, it made it very difficult because everybody else is, is doing stuff on Saturday but you can't. You yeah. know, So, it, it wasn't like, wow, I get to keep the Sabbath. It was more
0: like, Unfortunately, we just ran out of time. The point I was trying to make with this is, if you make the Sabbath out to be arbitrary, and we can explore and discuss lots of avenues and nuances and caveats and facets of the Sabbath, but if you make it out to be arbitrary, you're making God out to be arbitrary. And when you make God out to be arbitrary, suddenly he can't be trusted because arbitrary people do arbitrary things. And one of the founders of our church alleged that this is one of Satan's allegations against God, that God is arbitrary. I would challenge that God is not arbitrary. He doesn't use his power abusively, coercively, manipulatively, or arbitrarily. His, his power is always used in love for the good of his creatures. Arbitrariness is not a use of love for good of creatures. And that's the point I wanted to make. Gracious Father in Heaven, we wish we could spend some more time here talking about you because you are incredible. You are, as Jesus revealed. You are not arbitrary. You don't abuse your power. You don't coerce us. Help us work through these things and come to a balance and understanding to see you for who you are. And help us to be able to go forth and present the truth about you. We open the heart temple to you, asking for your spirit to come and dwell and cleanse and restore and renew us to be like you. So that we can be prepared and prepare this world that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.